Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman-Torpe and Peter Torpe. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week, we'll be talking with a visually impaired freelance journalist about some of the challenges he's had to overcome in his job and how it's all worked out for him. We'll speak with Jason Struther, who has reported for many news services that I'm sure you've heard of, largely from South Korea, but he's been expanding his interest to cover much of Asia as well. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Jason Struther. I think journalism is a fantastic career for people with visual impairments. I, I think there are some inherent skills that a visually impaired person has already uh, that could make them a, a good or, or better journalist, I, and especially in terms of memory. And just especially when it comes to radio, you, you know, one could you know, make assumptions that you know, visually impaired people have better, you know, sense of hearing and audio. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know. It seems like it would be a good mix for someone who has low vision to work in radio. I, I just think based on uh, the shared experience that I know that most visually impaired people have just our means of communication and, and how we we interact with the world could possibly make us more empathetic. And I think that's a good skill for any journalists to have visually impaired or not. I, I feel that it has helped me in, in many respects. My, my vision has made me a better journalist in, in some ways. Well, it sounds like it certainly worked out well for you. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Great. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Ira, an app that remotely connects people who are blind or have low vision to trained agents for access to visual information. Details are available at 1-800-835-1934. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Jason and learning about what kinds of journalism he's been involved in. Hi, my name is Jason Struther. I am a freelance multimedia journalist, and I'm also legally blind. And tell us a little bit more about the state of your vision. I have a condition called cone rod dystrophy. Uh, it affects my central vision. I have limited color vision. I think I can see primary colors, but get a lot of things mixed up. Uh, but what limits me really is reading. Right now, I use text-to-speech to do almost all of my long reading. I grew up using magnifiers to read or little monoculars, little telescopes to spot things from afar. I still carry one around with me just in case. Uh, I think my acuity is somewhere around 2300 in, in terms of uh, my near vision, what, what I'm able to read with. But uh, spatially, I get around pretty well. And you described yourself as a multimedia reporter. Tell people what that is exactly. 
Well, you know, as a freelance journalist, you you have to know how to do a little bit of everything. So in addition to writing for newspapers and magazines, I also produce radio. I have co-produced video. Uh, so you have to know how to do a, a little bit of everything, operate in all media. And these days, that includes maybe some more types of media than even existed when you were a student? I studied television production broadcasting back in the early 2000s in undergrad. Uh, so I had a good education in terms of how to produce video and radio, audio. Uh, but sure, I was learning on analog media. My school had not – we were just at the, that kind of convergence point uh, when everything was switching to digital. So they literally taught us how to cut tape using razor blades. Uh, so the technology certainly has changed a lot. But I, I was glad I, I was young enough to adapt quickly to it. Uh, so I, I learned how to edit video as well as audio on my own pretty much. But sure, I mean, since then, uh, just with broadband, you have video now everywhere and you also have podcasting everywhere. So I, I think I came into journalism at the right time to take advantage of uh, digital media. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is about how Jason has been able to be a successful freelance journalist in spite of his visual impairment. So tell us, Jason, how you got into journalism? Well, actually, Pete, uh, you know, it was kind of a long path. I started off as a theater major when I uh, started undergrad back in 1998. But then, you know, I, I realized that starring in Damn Yankees and my high school production was not going to get me a job on Broadway. So I, I took some time and thought about, you know, what else was I interested in? And, you know, travel was a big thing for me. I, during my undergrad years, I had traveled to South America and Europe on, on backpacking trips. I went with some uh, friends to South America, uh, to Brazil, my, my first time overseas in 2000. So I wanted a career that would enable me to travel, to keep learning. And, I got into television production and I thought maybe I would go, you know, something along the lines of National Geographic productions or Discovery Channel type productions, travel TV, documentary film. But I think after September 11th, 2001, where, you know, we used to be able to see the World Trade Center from our campus at Montclair State University in New Jersey, I, I think I realized that, you know, I became much more interested in, in global politics. And uh, I studied abroad in South Korea in 2002, and I felt journalism was going to be my vehicle to a, a life of living and traveling overseas. So your job before you started creating content was as a producer. Can you describe what that entails? Sure thing. Uh, when I graduated in 2003, my first job was at a 24-hour cable news channel in New York City, in the Bronx specifically. I was hired as an assignment editor, so I was basically assigning reports uh, for the reporters to, to do. Uh, but I got bumped up to producer. I was creating the newscast two to three different newscasts a day. And it was a lot of visual work. I was 
editing scripts. I was selecting video. There were a few occasions where I was literally uh, editing video that would be broadcast, creating uh, the text for graphics. And uh, it was challenging as a visually impaired person. I certainly made a lot of mistakes. There were a lot of typos that went to air that shouldn't have. Oops. <laughs> so I kind of felt after that, I, I worked at that TV station for about a year and a half. And then I started thinking, you know, maybe radio would be a better fit. After I, I went to graduate school in Belgium, graduated in 2006, I moved to South Korea, where I had studied a few years earlier and uh, bought a microphone, a, a mini disc recorder. I remember those. Yeah, uh, they were handy. Yeah, they were nice and portable, held a lot of information. It's a little easier to transport now. I have this brick of a digital recorder, this Marantz <laughs> recorder. Uh, sometimes I miss that tiny little mini disc. Uh, but yeah, starting in 2006, I, I moved to Seoul and uh, started pitching clients such as NPR, PRI is the World. There was a program run by World Vision that I reported for and then uh, eventually started writing for newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, I occasionally write for a British magazine called Monocle and then I was co-producing video for the Wall Street Journal and Voice of America. I mean, I, I, at any given time, I have a dozen clients that I file for. So you gave us a great idea of what a producer is, and basically it's a jack-of-all-trades. It sounds like you had to do everything involved in getting the shows out, and people may not realize what happens behind the scenes. But you also talked about being a freelance reporter and working for all these other agencies. How do you break into that at first? Right. When I moved to South Korea in 2006, I had never freelanced before. I had never had my own byline for a an, an established uh, media outlet before. It was a very different role than what I had done back in New York when you had a steady job and a steady paycheck and you, you pretty much know what time you're going to start your work during the day and what time you're going to end. Was that a little scary? It was intimidating, but I have a, a pretty good sense of time management. I, I, I think I'm a pretty organized person. Uh, I'm frugal, it would be a nice way to say it, to my own detriment, perhaps. So I, I think I had some of the inherent skill sets needed uh, to be a freelancer. I mean, and basically being a freelancer is like running any small business. You have to know how to manage the books. And one of the first clients I reported for was a college radio network. Fortunately or not, depending on how you look at it, the week that I arrived in South Korea in September 2006 was when North Korea tested its first nuclear bomb. So I kind of hit the ground running. So I'd reached out to this college radio network at Berkeley and I said, hey, I'm here in Seoul. And one of their editors said, yeah, get us a, a reactions piece. So I went around with my microphone. I, I lived right by a college campus in Seoul and I didn't have a translator with me. And I I, I still don't speak Korean all that well, but my Korean was really almost non-existent back then. Uh, found a bunch of English-speaking university students and, and interviewed them about their thoughts on North Korea's nuclear bomb. I interviewed my landlord and his mother who escaped North Korea back in the late 1940s. So I put together a whole radio piece and was up until about four in the morning editing it to get it in on time. That's one thing that maybe your typical audience might not think about that as a journalist, you often have extremely tight deadlines. 
Absolutely. There have been many times uh, when filing feature reports, like the kind I do for the radio program PRI's The World, which is based out of uh, Boston, uh, they're a little more flexible in terms of when they want feature stories. Sometimes they call them evergreens, uh, at least in the TV business. Uh, they call these kind of reports evergreens because they can go on at almost any time. They're not necessarily tied to a news peg. But uh, I tell you, in, in Korea, uh, there have been times when there is breaking news when, let's say, North Korea tests one of its many nuclear bombs, or in 2014, a, a, a ferry sank in South Korea, which killed almost 300 high school students. Uh, these are intense days. And on those days, I'm doing a lot of live reporting. I'm going live on radio. I'm going live on television. And it's one client to another. I hang up with one radio client, and I have to set up in front of my webcam to go live with a, a TV network in Europe somewhere. So it can be extremely intense and, and tiring and just absolutely can, can wipe you out. Uh, but it's a, it's an adrenaline rush. Uh, although I guess if I had to choose, I prefer taking a little bit of time on a story and putting together a bigger piece than just uh, speaking extemporaneously uh, on breaking news. And I guess this work as a freelance reporter sort of comes in waves. I suspect that there's some periods when no one's wanting any stories, and then all of a sudden there's a big news event that comes out that everybody wants stories for. Absolutely. There are, uh, you know, periods of uh, feast and famine when you're a freelancer. In order to survive the lean months, you really need to have a network of clients that will take work for, from you even when there's not a lot of news going on. So, I mean, I've stayed consistently busy during my time as a freelancer. And like I said, I have, at any given time, I'm filing for a dozen clients. So I noticed on your website, you've started doing a number of pieces that are related to people with disabilities and how that impacts their interaction with whatever just happened in the area. That's right, Nancy. Even though I went to Korea in 2006 to re really report about North Korea and the dynamics on the Korean peninsula, I have found myself over the years that I keep going back to stories about disability, in, in particular about how blind people manage what their lives are like. I, I've reported on these situations from South Korea. Uh, I In 2012, I went to India and reported on a superstition that causes blindness. Uh, I met a blind Cambodian folk singer back in 2008. So I, I found myself always going back to these stories. And uh, uh, in Korea, in, in particular, there's a lot going on there about the blind. Tell us what it's like for blind folks in Korea. Still in South Korea, the blind have a constitutionally protected right to work in the massage industry. Technically, only blind people can be massors. Now, some cited Masors have found loopholes into the system, uh, but that continues to be the main source of income for many blind people in South Korea. But I, I'm glad to say that things are changing, and I, I've met some really positive and ambitious visually impaired people in South Korea who are, are trying to go beyond what's expected of them. But still, uh, there are a lot of social stigma attached with being blind or, or disabled in general in South Korea that hold people back. But one of the reports that I'm perhaps most proud about was a story I did last year in 2018 from the Philippines, where I, I've done a lot of reporting. Uh, it was on how climate change impacts 
people with disabilities. Oh, how interesting. Can you tell us more about that story? Absolutely. I went to a city called Takloban, uh, which in 2013 was absolutely devastated by Typhoon Haiyan. Uh, I was there in early 2014 reporting on the aftermath of that storm, but it was nice to go back last year and, and see how the city had recovered. I mean, I think a few thousand people died during that typhoon. But uh, when I went back this time uh, with the help of a fixer, a, a local journalist who I hired to not only translate for me, but kind of take me in the right directions. I went around interviewing people who either had been disabled already during the storm and how they survived. Or, or I met one woman almost drowned in her wheelchair when the storm surge rose in her house. Suddenly, uh, I met another woman who uh, whose leg had to be amputated because uh, when the tsunami that the storm surge caused, I think a, a metal part of a, of a roof broke off and really uh, cut her badly on one of her legs and she had to be amputated. I met a couple blind Filipinos uh, and talked to them about how they survived the storm. Uh, I, I mean, it was incredible stories to hear. And this is an aspect about climate change that has not received a lot of media or legislative attention. And there are some NGOs, non-government organizations that are trying to raise the alarm bells. Uh, but I think as weather systems get stronger and more frequent, I mean, even uh, wildfires in California, from what I understand, no emergency text messages were sent out during some of these fires. And for people who are deaf and when they're sleeping, sleep on top of their phones on vibrate, uh, they were not alerted uh, that fires uh, were occurring, that their neighborhoods had been evacuated. Of course, rescue workers went around with loudspeakers, but that can't help someone with a severe hearing impairment. Right. So it's a lot of precaution that needs to be paid, not only in the developing world, but here in the United States as well in terms of climate change. So you talked a little bit about some of the accommodations you've made because of your vision loss. Have you run into any kind of pushback or reluctance to hire you from clients or prospective clients? It's not something that I immediately disclose to my clients that I'm visually impaired. So when I started working at the TV station in the Bronx back in 2003, I really tried to hide my vision. Uh, you know, and I was working in television, a very visual medium, you know, and I think even back in 2003 with ADA regulations, I don't think an employer could flat out ask me. But I remember uh, after working at the TV station for about a month or so, the news director, who I, I, I quite liked a lot, a very charismatic guy, he, you know, asks me to come into his office and I'm wondering, OK, what's going on? And he said, you know, Jason, I, I know I'm not supposed to ask this, but what's going on with your vision? <laughs> so I, I told him and he said, that's fantastic. Uh, whatever you need, let us know. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, I had a large monitor, uh, which was a big relief. And it was not an issue. And he didn't want to make it an issue. He, he knew that I I wanted my kind of privacy about it, even though, I mean, I was I became open with my colleagues there and it was never an issue. Uh, but it was something that I was very concerned about it. First. But, you know, being a far flung journalist working on the other side of the world uh, and especially in radio, uh, it doesn't come up too often that I'm visually impaired. However, when I do live television, it has become an issue uh, because when I'm looking at the webcam or camera, 
because I have low central vision, I can't always focus directly on the lens, you know, so the camera is maybe, you know, several feet in front of me. And you certainly can't read teleprompters. Oh, absolutely impossible. But yeah, that goes back to my high school theater days, Pete, when I was remembering scripts. So I'm actually, I, I have a pretty good memory uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, reciting facts and, and, and whatever else. So how do you make it work with live video? When I'm doing live stand-ups, uh, you know, outside of the Olympic Stadium during the Winter Olympics, for example, uh, last year in South Korea. Uh, you know, I'm not looking directly at the camera. I, I think people tell me that my eyes kind of trail off to the, like, upper right. Mm-hmm. And I have had clients on the other side, you know, of the Skype connection saying, hey, Jason, like, what what are you looking at? You know, you're not looking directly <laughs> at the camera. And, you know, I, I kind of smile and say, well, you know, I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm I'm legally <laughs> blind and I can't focus on my little webcam that easily. Most clients totally cool about it. Not an issue. But a few clients have kind of brought it up again and again and said, "Well, you really got to try." Look, and I said, "Look, I'm sorry. There's only so much I can do here." Sometimes once you have your foot in the door, it's a little bit easier for people to understand once they see how you're working successfully, but getting in can sometimes make you a little tenuous about doing it. Absolutely. I'm still hesitant to disclose that I am visually impaired uh, in in many situations, whether it be job or just in in personal life. I think as I've I've gotten older, I've become more comfortable with that. But still, there there is some hesitation on my part to be too open about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and maybe that stems back, you know, uh, growing up legally blind and and using magnifiers and closed circuit televisions. I I was picked on. I I was bullied. Not not incredibly so. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, there were a few years in high school, a couple years in high school that I was really tormented because of my vision. And I, you know, that probably has some kind of lasting impact on how open one wants to be about it. I don't know, Pete, if you had a similar experience growing up visually impaired. Well, you know, when I was young, I had approximately the type of vision that you're talking about, 2200, 2400, someplace in that range. Mm. And for the most part, especially when you're young, it's easy to hide, you know, because you don't use a cane. You can walk through a door, down a corridor. The biggest thing was when I was reading, you know, my nose was pressed up against the book. Likewise. If we had a substitute in school... They'd look at me and say, you know, you need glasses. And I'd say, okay, (laughs) knowing that I'd never see them again. Occasionally, they'd come in a second time and say, didn't you get glasses yet? You ought to speak to your parents. And then the whole class would get up. No, he can't see. That's the way he is. They defended me. It was kind of cool. Oh, good. Yeah. At the all boys Catholic high school I went to for my first year as a high school, the whole not only were sometimes the teachers would mock me because of my vision, but of course, my classmates would play the Batman theme song or duct tape my key lock to my locker where they had combination lockers. Yeah, no. It was some rough years, but then, uh, you know, I think when I transferred to the public high school for my last two years, uh, I had a much better time and kind of thrived in my school's theater program. And uh, yeah, it was not an issue after that. So it sounds like for the most part, your vision wasn't an issue and you've managed to deal with it. But I'm wondering if there was any time when it was a little bit more of a concern. You know, Pete and Nancy, there haven't been too many times in my career that I felt my vision was a a liability. Uh, But, you know, one occasion that comes to mind was back in November of 2010. 
this South Korean island had just been bombed by North Korea, Yongpyeon Island. So I went out there to do reporting. I took a, my newly hired intern with me to help translate. And it was the second day there. I, we were waiting for the fair. Well, actually, it was the third day there because we got stuck on the island. We were waiting for the ferry. And I had kind of just gone out on my own for a little. I think I, I commandeered a bicycle and cautiously rode around. There were no cars on the island, so I thought I was safe. And suddenly air raid sirens go off. The island had just been bombed three days earlier. And I thought, oh, is it going to happen again? Are bombs going to fall on this island and I thought am I going to be able to see the bombs as they're coming down like of course I shells falling on a you know an island is dangerous for anyone but I thought what am I going to do can I find the bomb shelter if I see one of these projectiles coming my way am I going to be able to react quick enough to get out of the way or am I only going to notice when it's several yards you know before impact but fortunately uh, at that moment a van pulled up next to me and some guys hollered for me to get in the car and drove me to the bomb shelter uh, and uh, even better so North Korea did not fire any more missiles it was more or less a false alarm. But that was maybe the first time in my reporting career that I thought, whoa, like I have my visual impairment really could mean the difference between life and death. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad it didn't. And I bet you are, too. <laughs> it made a heck of a story, though, when I was reporting from the bunker for the report that I filed uh, while I was on that trip. But, yeah, it was kind of a, a kind of a, a moment of realization, perhaps. Well, that had to be incredibly scary. But nonetheless, remember Jason's enthusiasm and what he said in his tip about what a great career he feels journalism is, whether or not you have a visual impairment. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about Jason and his work, how to contact him directly, and how you can find a link to a piece that Jason did for the BBC World Service Radio about last week's topic, Thomas Panic running a half marathon guided only by guide dogs with no human backup. So if people wanted to connect with you or find some of your work, where would you send them? Sure. Well, easiest thing is just to Google Jason Struther. Um, I have a profile on the uh, homepage of PRI's The World, which I believe now it's www.theworld.org. And uh, I think if you if you search for Jason Struther on that, it'll come up to my profile with links to all my work. I am soon to put back up my homepage, jasonstruther.net. And I also have a professional Facebook page, Jason Struther. And how do you spell Jason Struther? J-A-S-O-N-S-T-R-O-T-H-E-R. And if somebody wanted to reach you, how would they do that? Best to email me, jasonwstruther at gmail.com. So that's all one word, no spaces, no dots, jasonwstruther at gmail.com. And you'll find all that contact information and those resources in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. We'll also have a link to the piece that Jason did about running with a guide dog. 
The show notes will also contain links to previous episodes of Eyes on Success in which we talk with people that have radio and television careers. That's it for show number 1932. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about adapting to blindness as an adult. Kelly Egan was in her 40s when she started losing her vision. We'll talk with her about how she adapted to her situation by attending a vocational rehabilitation program to acquire blindness life skills and went on to become a customer relations manager at Sprint, advocating for and providing programs and promotions to people with disabilities. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.